Good morning. And it is a good morning. In spite of all that's going on around us right now, it is a good morning. This is the day that the Lord has made, and we're going to rejoice and be glad in it. We're going to rejoice in the midst of COVID, in the midst of all that is happening with our church family, all those that are sick and afflicted. We pray for them. We pray for their well-being, and we rejoice because we serve a God in the middle of this mess that's going to get us through it. Thank you so much for tuning in this morning. In some ways, it feels like a step back, going to online services again. But as Clay said in his opening, isn't it great that we have the technology that we are able to gather together as family and friends and watch and tune in and still have some semblance of being together. And hopefully, prayerfully, this is a short-term solution and uh, we'll be back together in person very, very soon. You know, the story is told that back in the Old West, when things were being settled, that the first pioneers were going through the Oregon Trail, and they come to the eastern slope of the Rocky Mountains, and they come to a stream that was just wide enough that they couldn't cross in one step, but they noticed an area where there was a large rock in the middle of the stream that allowed them to step onto the rock and then on to the next side. And as this area was being settled, one gentleman decided to build a cabin by this stream, and his cabin door kept flapping in the wind. In order to fix the problem, he went out into the stream and he got that one big rock and he used it as a doorstop. Well, one particular season, this, uh, this gentleman had a visitor. It was his nephew who was coming from college. He uh, was studying geology and he walked up to his uncle's cabin and noticed the rock that was holding the door open. And he noticed that it was not a normal, just everyday rock that in fact it was a nugget of gold. In fact, one of the biggest nuggets of gold ever found in that part of the world. You see, this gentleman had used it as a doorstop. Before that, it had been used as a simple stepping stone, no one realizing its true value. And so it is with Jesus. Who was he? Well, it depended on who was doing the looking. Some saw him as a stumbling block when in reality he was a precious stone, the chief cornerstone in fact. Now I'm sure we all know something about the cornerstone. My guess is you've heard a lesson or two about Jesus being the chief cornerstone and how a cornerstone is the pivotal piece of any building. It is the piece or stone that governs all the lines and angles of the walls. It is the unifier for the entire building. And we see Peter illustrate this beautifully in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, where it reads, And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay a choice stone in Zion, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for those who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also disappointed. 
Now, Peter had some help here, and you say, well, of course he did. The Holy Spirit was guiding his words and his pen. But he actually had some help from the Old Testament because he draws these words from Psalm 118, verse 22, which reads, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So who's the psalmist talking about here? Jesus? Well, maybe. But in the more immediate context, the psalmist is talking about Israel. And you can read through this psalm sometime and you will see that it is a song of praise to God for the salvation of his people. We know that Israel was a despised and rejected nation, serving as servants and slaves to other nations. Nevertheless, despite the hatred from the other nations, this was God's chosen people. And we see the story of Israel is a story that finds its completion in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to fulfill what Israel failed to do. He came to complete the story. And just like Israel, Jesus was despised and rejected, despised and rejected by the very people who should have embraced him. The Messiah was the chief cornerstone of Israel. He was the reference point for all other stones that were laid. Everything finds its definition in this one stone. That's how you know that the structure is straight and true. It's how you know what the law and the prophets spoke of was true. We see the original intent of the builder through the chief cornerstone, the Messiah. The people who knew the story the best were the ones who completely blew the ending. This was years in the making, and instead of building everything on this chief cornerstone, they stumbled over it like that rock sitting in the stream. The Jews saw Jesus as nothing more than, than a doorstop rather than the priceless nugget of gold that he was. A fact that Jesus confronted with the Jews in Matthew chapter 21, starting at verse 42. He says, did you, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and will be given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Now understand, Israel would not have argued with the idea or the concept of the Messiah being the chief cornerstone. They knew that very well. What they had a problem with was Jesus claiming to be the Messiah and thus the chief cornerstone. He wasn't what they were looking for, and therefore they were still waiting for the deliverer, and in their waiting they stumbled right over the one who met all the criteria. Let's shift gears a little bit, and let's look in 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is where we witness David, the giant killer, being killed by the giant of sin. And it all started one evening on a rooftop, right? Where he notices a beautiful woman bathing, and the rest is history. Once David's eyes bounced in the direction of Bathsheba, he knew he had to have her, and he would stop at nothing to get her, even if that meant arranging for her husband's death. You know, it's tragic when you read through 1 Samuel chapter 11 sometime and see how far David had fallen. He was once a national hero who becomes a scum-of-the-earth person. And we don't always focus on the egregiousness of David's actions, but let's quickly review David's plan to have Bathsheba all to himself. Plan A is to get Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, off the battlefield and back home. Then he could, Uriah could be with her, she could have the baby, Uriah would think that the baby was his, and everything would be back to normal. The secret sin of David and Bathsheba could be swept under the rug, life would go on. But there's one thing that King David didn't count on. 
and that is the loyalty of Uriah. Uriah refuses to leave the people of God on the field of battle while he slept in the comfort of his own bed. And so plan A fails. Uriah doesn't take the bait. And so David tries a different approach. He invites Uriah to his house and gets him drunk. And with this plan, David is trying to smear Uriah's character. The king is thinking, I'll get Uriah drunk. His judgment will be blurred. I'll send him home in disgrace. In his drunken stupor, he'll lose his nobility. But Uriah didn't go home. So David is now desperate. In a last-ditch effort, he tries to set Uriah up to be killed, to make it look like he died in battle when in reality the whole thing was staged. You know, it was bad enough that David slept with another man's wife. Now he's trying to cover it up by duping Uriah and arranging his death. And it's hard not to be absolutely disgusted with David at this point, especially when you notice that he sends the death orders by Uriah. The very death orders that David sends to to Joab containing the strategy for Uriah's arranged murder. These orders are sent by Uriah himself. And it makes you wonder, is, is David showing some unrestrained arrogance here? Is he just rubbing his nose in it as he sends the sealed orders with Uriah, knowing that it contains his death warrant? The godly man who defeated the Philistine and brought victory to Israel was now about as far away from God as he could get. And it all started that fateful evening on the rooftop. Or did it? Think about this. May I suggest that David's fall began even earlier. Verse 1 of 2 Samuel 11 reads, Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. David's first mistake was not going out on the rooftop that night. David's first mistake was staying home. Kings don't stay home while their men go to battle. Kings are in the battlefield with their men. If David had not shirked his responsibility, if he would have not stayed at idle in Jerusalem, then the door to sin never would have been opened, and thus a series of costly mistakes follow. At this point, you may be thinking to yourself, Chris, what in the world does this have to do with Jesus being the chief cornerstone? Well, we are the sum total of all our choices, are we not? Therefore, on what do you base your decisions? Or let me ask it this way. What is the common denominator for people who make bad decisions? We forget who we are, don't we? It's easy to do. It may just be a brief moment here and there, but we lose our identity. And some don't forget, they just ignore. But either way, it's a failure to recognize who we are. David lost sight of who he was. He was God's anointed. He was king, but he lost sight of who he was and allowed sin to rule and reign. Our destiny is wrapped up in our identity. The fact that we are in Christ means that we have a hope and a future. And the devil is always attempting to rob us of our identity. He is constantly seeking to redefine who we are. That is why it's vital important that we have a cornerstone 
The cornerstone is the reference point for all other stones. Everything finds its definition in the cornerstone. So if you want to know if your life is in alignment, you look to the cornerstone. If you want to be certain that you're not deviating from the intent of the builder, then you look to the cornerstone. The cornerstone provides the very definition and basis for what is right and wrong, what is true and false. The cornerstone defines our reality. Jesus is the cornerstone of our entire worldview. And we all need a cornerstone. We need one because we're constantly being pulled in different directions. You know, Satan is not in hell, not yet. He will be one day, but he's not there yet. Right now, he has a lot of influence and a lot of power, and he does his best to steal our identity. And when he is at his best and we are at our worst, we need a reference point. We need a solid rock that brings us back into alignment. You ever seen the original Toy Story movie? Do you happen to notice that one of the major themes of that movie is identity? Woody struggles with his place in Andy's life. He used to be Andy's favorite toy, but one day he finds himself in the toy box rather than in his usual place on the bed next to Andy. Woody is replaced by a brash, arrogant toy by the name of Buzz Lightyear. And Buzz Lightyear is annoying, a nuisance to to Woody. He is not happy about Buzz stealing his place. Finally, Woody says, and stop with this spaceman thing. It's getting on my nerves. And then Woody pushes Buzz, and Buzz's helmet opens. Buzz falls to the floor, gasping for air, surprised that the air is not toxic to him. Woody says to Buzz, you actually think you're Buzz Lightyear? And he did. He actually thought that he was some space astronaut. And Woody tries to convince Buzz to be happy with who he is. The purpose for which he was made. Which was to be a toy for Andy's enjoyment. The wise old sage Woody explains to Buzz the importance of being a toy and encourages him to live out his purpose. And then the two of them join the other toys And they sing just as I am and everybody's happy. Actually, that's not what happens. But it is a rather theological lesson preached by a computer-generated toy set to the voice of Tom Hanks. We are all Buzz Lightyear's in a sense. If we're being honest, we've all struggled at one time or another with who we are. Many of us have faced even a full-blown identity crisis. Our identity is found in who we belong to. And for Woody, for, for Buzz, they belong to Andy. For us, of course, it's God. We are his. But Satan is bent on robbing us of our identity. The devil knows that he cannot defeat God, so he turns to God's creation instead. And he takes what God created and perverts it. He distorts it and he destroys it. And two of the biggest weapons in his arsenal are guilt and shame. Guilt and shame are twins, born in the Garden of Eden, only moments apart. They were conceived in rebellion. They resemble their parents. They have their father's eyes and their mother's smile. But while they are twins, they're not identical, they're fraternal. There is a distinction to be made. Guilt is a verdict. It's an awareness of failure against a standard. Shame is a feeling. It's a sense of exposed failure against someone else. When you violate God's law, you feel guilty, or at least you should. That emotion, however, is almost always joined by shame. Not always. Some people know they're guilty and just don't care. But by and large, guilt is tied to an event 
in which the individual knows I did something wrong. Shame is connected to the person in which he or she thinks I'm bad. So in other words, guilt is the wound, shame is the scar. So you go back to the birth of these twins. You know, it's you see the distinctive marks that set them apart in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 6. It says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig, tree, uh, fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Guilt is the event. The fact that Eve and then Adam ate from the tree that they were expressly forbidden to eat from. But what happened after this event? Well, it says their eyes were opened. They noticed that they were naked. They were embarrassed. They felt shame. Guilt spoke to them and said, you did something wrong. And almost immediately, shame spoke to them as well and said, you need to go run and hide. You deserve to live apart from God. You're no good. You don't belong here. Adam and Eve lost sight of their identity. They forgot that God made and God gave. You know, when I was younger, in elementary school, we did a, a lesson on pottery. And so we all got to take clay and form some sort of ceramic pottery. We got to paint it. We got to put it, we got to put it in the kiln and, and, you know, watch it develop. And the whole process was really, really kind of neat. I made an ashtray for my mom. I don't know why my mom didn't smoke. She never smoked. But I made this ashtray and I gave it to her one day. And when you have to tell a person what the gift is you're giving them, it's probably not a real good gift. You know, when you have to explain, hey, this is an ashtray, it's probably not a great gift. But my mother treasured that ashtray. She kept it in the kitchen for everyone to see that walked into our house. Not because she smoked, not because she thought it was useful, not because it was beautiful by any means, but because I had made it and I had gave it to her. And for those reasons, it was priceless in her eyes. God made and God gave. Satan does his best to divert our attention away from that reality. But the fact remains that our value rests in the hands of the one who made us and the one who gave his son for us. Think about it. The cross is Jesus' way of saying that I'd rather die than live without you. Paul wrote these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I want you to think about that passage for just a moment. You are the most important piece in God's entire plan. You know, set aside Jesus for a moment, but you are the most important piece in that entire plan. You came before it all. Before he chose to make the oceans, he chose you. Before he chose to make the solar system, he chose you. Before he chose to put the sun, the moon, and the stars into their orbit, he chose you. Before he placed a flower, a tree, a mountain, or an elephant on this planet, he chose you. The Genesis account shows us that we were the pivotal piece of his creation. Everything else that was made was made for us. But... I want you to pay particular attention to the phrase, just as he chose us in him. Our identity is directly connected to the power of that little word, in. 
If you are in your car, you're surrounded by your car. If you are in your house, the house is all around you, right? If you are in jail, you are confined to a particular cell. (coughs) Excuse me. If you are in trouble, you are immersed in adversity. So what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, Paul actually gives us a really good definition in Ephesians chapter 1 where we just read. Verse 3, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 6, God freely bestowed his grace upon us in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption. Verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 12, we have hope in Christ. In verse 13, we were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. When you are in Christ, all that is true of him changes what is true of you. It's like, uh, it's like this. I've got, I've got a bucket here, and I've got a ball. So if I take the ball and put it in the bucket, then what's true of the bucket is now true of the ball. Am I right? The ball is in the bucket. I can swing the bucket. And if I swing the bucket, the ball swings too because the ball is in the bucket. If I lose the bucket, what happens to the ball? Well, the ball is lost as well. Because whatever is true of the bucket is true of the ball and vice versa, right? The word in is used to describe the state or position of one thing in relation to another. The ball is in the bucket. The check is in the mail. The cowboys are in the toilet. In is key. So when Paul states that we are in Christ, he is describing our status, our state of being. Like the ball in the bucket, you are in Christ. Jesus rose from the dead. We will rise from the dead. Jesus is in heaven with the Father. We will be in heaven with the Father. What is true of Jesus is now true of you. Of course, being You know, a ball in a bucket is about more than just placement or position, and it's not just about static status. It's about relationship, and this is where the ball and the bucket, you know, illustration fail. They are inanimate objects. But you and Jesus are real life. Real life living, breathing persons, which means that all of the positional truths become practical realities in Christ. So, When you are tempted to measure your worth by other people's opinion of you, look to the cornerstone. When you are tempted to believe that you have done too much wrong for God to ever forgive you, look to the cornerstone. When you are consumed with guilt and shame, look to the cornerstone. When you struggle to see yourself through the eyes of God, look to the cornerstone. And when you are tempted to find your identity in something other than Jesus, look to the cornerstone. Remember who, not what, remember who your life is built upon. And allow the cornerstone to define your reality, your life, and to govern how you live. Thank you so much for tuning in. If we can help you in some way, why don't you contact the church office this week? We love you. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time.